There's actually three Bible readings, but don't be alarmed. They're all in Genesis, so you'll find it. Um, chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 26. It's the first reading. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The second reading is over in chapter 2. So chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the fields and all the birds of the air, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The last reading is from chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The debate is certainly intensifying, isn't it? As you can see in those two ads, the first uh, for the No campaign and the second responding to that ad for the Yes campaign. Is it simply marriage equality or... Are we being asked to redefine marriage and what will come from that? Uh, last week we asked Jesus a question, what is marriage? And so what is same-sex marriage? And what's at stake for men and women? Tonight I want to ask the question, what's at stake for children? And then a little later on, what's at stake for freedom? When it comes to children, it's, it's confusing, isn't it? Because there are all sorts of claims about whether this will affect children at all, and if so, in what way. And I think we especially find it confusing because of the mess of our society for children. I mean, heterosexual relationships so often are such a mess, and they affect children negatively so how could we make a judgment or a decision about same-sex relationships in that second ad uh, Karen Phelps 
told us the only young people affected by marriage equality are gay and lesbian young people. I want to ask tonight, is that true? And I want to try and answer that question by those three questions on the outline you can see. What's marriage for? So what is same-sex marriage and what's at stake for children? Firstly, what's marriage for? It seems like a strange question, doesn't it? What's marriage for? Surely it's, it's obvious. Marriage is for the couple. It's all about on your wedding day, declaring your love for each other, making promises and then keeping the promises. Marriage is for the couple to enjoy. And if you think about it a little, marriage is not just for the couple, it's for society, isn't it? It's good for society to know who's married and who's not and who's married to who and to help people be responsible and to try and work things out if things break down. Marriage is for the couple and it's for society. But is it for more than that? Well, Jesus said marriage is a permanent union, we saw last week, between a man and a woman because God made them male and female. That's what he quoted from Genesis. But that begs the question, doesn't it? If marriage is between a man and a woman because God made them male and female, why did he make them male and female? And I was struck this week when I looked at it that when Jesus quotes uh, in Matthew 19, we looked at last week, he's not just quoting from Genesis 2, that classic marriage passage. Now when he says he made them male and female, it's not Genesis 2, it's Genesis 1. And I think that ought to tell us something about what marriage is for. So pull it out, uh, Genesis 1 and verse 26. God has just made everything. He's made everything with order and he's filled it with lots of plants and lots of animals and lots of fish. And then he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let's make man in our image. And what does it mean that we're made in his image? Does it mean that we look like God? That we think like God? That we alone are spiritual like God? No, I don't think so. It tells you right there what it means. Let's make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. You can tell what God does in Genesis 1. He rules. He's in charge. And he puts people in charge. He gives them a job and people are to serve God by ruling the world. And God seems to think that we need to be male and female to do that. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. We need to be male and female to be equal but different, to rule the world together. That's what God thinks. That's the glory of his design. We'll do it better if we're equal but different. But there's a particular way that being male and female helps us to rule the world. In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful 
and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. They're still to serve God by ruling the world. But there's something crucial that's got to happen. One man and one woman is not going to be enough when God has filled the world with creatures and plants and animals. There's going to need to be lots of them. And so he needs male and female to be fruitful and increase in number. And you know what I'm talking about, and I think you probably learned it at school. It's the birds and the bees that we're talking about. That's why he made them male and female, so they could multiply and fill the earth and serve God by ruling the earth. That's the scene that's set in chapter 1. What's that got to do with marriage? There's no mention of marriage there. Well, you get to Genesis chapter 2, and it zooms in, doesn't it, on the garden and one man in the garden. And verse 18, something is not good for the first time. It's not good for the man to be alone. The man was lonely, and so he needed someone to love. That's what we think, isn't it? But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say the man is lonely. It says he's alone. And what he needs is not a companion primarily, but a helper. As if he's got a job to do and he needs someone to help him because on his own, get this blokes, the man is inadequate. He's weak for the job. He can't get it done on his own. He needs someone else who's like him but different to him. What's the job that he's got that he's supposed to be doing that he can't? Verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And he can't do it on his own. It's too much work for one man. He doesn't have the skills. He needs someone who's like him, but different. The animals are no good for this. And God makes a woman, brings him to the man, and the man is delighted. Because he knows he'll never be lonely again? No. Because suddenly it's love at first sight? No. Because all his needs will now be met? No. Because now he knows that together they can serve God by ruling the world, caring for the garden. He's no longer inadequate because there are two of them. But will two of them be enough when the world is so big and so full? No, chapter 1, verse 28, they need to be fruitful and multiply. And you see that, don't you, in verse 24. There's going to be a father and a mother. And that father and the mother are going to have a man, a son. And he'll be united to his wife. And you get the impression very clearly in verse 24 that's going to happen again and again and again. Because the man and his wife will come together in marriage and they will have a child. Just like God said in chapter 1. There's no children in chapter 2, verse 24, I know that. But the next thing that happens, apart from that aberration in chapter 3, which is a rather significant aberration, but the next thing that happens in the story, chapter 4, verse 1, Adam lies with his wife 
She becomes pregnant and gives birth to Cain. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. What is marriage for? It's for the couple. It's for society. And it's for having and raising children. This week I had the privilege of being involved in the funeral for Ray's father, Jim Trapple. And so I heard about how Jim first met his wife, Ruth. They eyed each other off at a dance. And clearly he, uh, he liked the look of her. And as you did in those days, he offered to walk her home. Then he wasn't sure what was the best next move. And then he realised. He was growing a row of peas. And he'd heard that Ruth was a champion pea picker. And so he invited her over to pick peas with him. Well, it was a hit. And she picked twice as many peas as him. She was that good. And the rest is history. The rest is history. They were married for... 60 years, and they cared for the garden. Peas and a whole lot of peaches, from what I heard at the funeral. Not only peaches and peas, but they had and raised five children. Then there were ten grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. It's not the most romantic story, is it? It's not going to become a romantic comedy on the big screen. But Jim was a man who understood what marriage was for. It's for the couple. It's for society. And it's to have and raise children. Now, not all married couples have children. Some, when they get married, are too old. Some couples decide through disability or whatever it is that they're not able to care for children. Some couples are not given that blessing. And that is a great sadness. Those couples are still very much married, aren't they? For there's more to marriage than just having and raising children. I'm not saying that's all there is, but that is part of it. The exception does not disprove the rule. Part of the purpose of marriage is having and raising children. And this is true not just for Christians. This is what we've thought from the beginning. This is what all people think. When you come here to have a service, an Anglican wedding service, at the beginning of the wedding service, we say that you've got to enter marriage with the right idea, with God's purposes. And one of those is to have children. I point that out to the couple. I say to them, look, it says that here. I'm going to say it on the day. I'm going to pray for you that God will give you the blessing of children. Are you okay with that? I say. And not just Anglican or Australia, the United Nations says that everyone has the right to marry. To marry and buy a house? No, it doesn't say that. To marry and grow old and end up looking like each other? No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? It's the right of men and women to marry and found a family. 
because every society thinks that marriage is about having and raising children. Now, just as an aside, I want to ask you, do you believe this? Some of you here tonight are not married, but are hoping, I take it some of you, to be married one day. Do you see this as part of the deal? Is this part of why you want to be married? Because you want to have and raise children. And if you don't, then seems like marriage is not for you because this is part of the purpose. If you're someone who's likely to get, who wants to get married in the future and you're thinking, who will I marry? Well, look for someone that has common interests to you, that is a Christian, and also you think would be a good person to be having and raising children with because you may well end up doing that for a lot of your life. A good criteria. If you're married with children and you might be spending a lot of your time looking after children and worrying about them, and you might just remember those days when you didn't have children and things were simpler, do you see them as an interruption to that couple thing? No, marriage is for the couple, it's for society, and it's for children. So let's get to the topic. What does that mean for same-sex marriage? Well, we saw last week that Jesus said marriage is a permanent union between a man and a woman. And so same-sex marriage, so-called, is not marriage. Now there's even more reason for saying that. What is marriage for? One of the reasons is for having and raising children. Can a same-sex couple have children? Well, basic biology will tell you no. And then the evidence of society is that though there might be other means through previous heterosexual relationships or through science, not many same-sex couples actually have children. What proportion do you think of female same-sex couples have children living with them? It's 22%, less than a quarter. What proportion of male same-sex couples have children living with them? 3%. It's very rare, contrary to what the media would try to portray to us. They cannot have children, naturally, and most don't have children living with them. You see, if marriage is between a man and a woman, then same-sex marriage is not marriage. And if marriage is for having and raising children, then you'd have to redefine what marriage is to say that same-sex marriage is marriage. The plebiscite question, remember, says, do you want to change the law to allow same-sex couples to marry But what it's really saying is, do you want to change marriage to allow same-sex couples to marry? In particular, do you want to redefine marriage to leave out the bit about children so that it's just for the couple and for society? Is that a good idea? What is marriage? It includes being for the having and raising of children. What is same-sex marriage? I'm suggesting that it's not marriage. 
So what's at stake for children in all of this? Would it really affect them? Is it true that it's only young people who are gay who would be affected and that positively by this change? Well, think about the children of same-sex couples for a moment. Even though biology says they can't have children, some same-sex couples do have children, don't they? Through science. How does that happen? Think about it for a moment. If it's a female same-sex couple, then they need to get a sperm, either from a sperm bank or from a donor who they know. If it's a male same-sex couple, then they need to get an egg and they need to get a womb. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. What does that mean then for the child? Either way, a child is removed from their biological parent. There's no other way to do it. So the adult decides to give away their child and two adults decide to receive that child. But the child has no say in it. Can you see that? And the United Nations, for example, which all the countries have signed, this Convention on the Rights of a Child, says that every child has the right to know and be cared for by their parents. Every child has the right not to be separated from their parents against their will unless it's in the child's best interests. So should we be endorsing removing children from their biological parents? How do you think such children might care about it? Well, some of it, uh, have said they feel like genetic orphans and that they long to have the chance to know their missing parent, but they can't. The children of same-sex couples are denied the right to know their parent. But what about children who are not now, created for the couple, but move into that relationship because they're from a previous relationship or they're adopted? That's different, isn't it? Well, they may well be cared for really well by those two adults. Those two adults may love this child very much. But no matter how much they love this child, this child will not have someone as a father role or a mother role. Whichever it is, they're missing out on one of them. Does that matter? do you think? Is it actually important for a child to have a father and a mother role in their family life? Well, people make claims and counterclaims, but overall, pretty much every study has shown that children do better if they're raised by a father and mother, on average, in general. Because God's created us male and female. He thinks that having the two equal but different genders in a family uh, works best. It means that if you've got a boy child, for example, he learns how to relate to someone who's the same parent and he learns how to relate to someone who's different 
parents. And that's helpful. We think this, don't we? We have a Mother's Day and a Father's Day, not two parents' day. Even if you've got a really bad father or a really bad mother, you know, I think, it would be good to have a good father and a good mother, not just two of one and none of the other. I think you understand the point I'm trying to make. Finally, there's one bigger point that I want to make, that it's not just the children of same-sex couples who are affected by this. I think if we vote for same-sex marriage as a society, it'll affect all children. Because what's at stake is we're redefining marriage and saying that it's no longer for children. You see, what happens at the moment when you think that one of the purposes of marriage is for having and raising children? Or when boy meets girl, boy likes girl, boy wants to spend the rest of his life with girl, he's excited about that and asks her, and hopefully she says yes. And they're excited about spending their time together. But they also are anticipating that one day their delightful harmony with just the two of them will be interrupted. Intruders will break in. Strangers will begin to live amongst them. And if they are blessed with such strangers... They won't see them as strangers. They won't see them as intruders because that's what they signed up for. That's what they were looking forward to. Even though they cost an inordinate amount of money and time, they're welcome because that's what you wanted. What would happen then if we redefine marriage so that it's not about children anymore? And it's all about you, the couple. Well, a whole lot of couples wouldn't have children. They'd choose, if they could, if the contraception worked, and miss out on the great blessing of having children. And our society would decline. Most of them, of course, would have children because they do tend to come along. And when these intruders, these strangers come along, they would not be welcome. They would be seen as intruders and either rejected or resented. Do you see? Because we've ruled out having children as part of what marriage is about. Currently in Australia, there are 6,300 children in same-sex families. Sounds like a lot. But... Every year, the heterosexual community aborts 83,000 children. That's a whole lot more, isn't it? A much bigger problem. And alongside that, those children who, um, uh, those children who are born, there are thousands of fathers who don't see it as important to care for those children. That's already the situation. Even without redefining marriage. If you redefine marriage, we're heading along the same track 
and making it even worse, I think. Surely it would be the last thing you'd want to do is to cut out children from your definition of marriage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard things to think about. Uh, It's complicated. We struggle to work out what is the right thing to do. But Father, we thank you that we see in your word that you've given us the gift of marriage because you made us male and female, because you wanted us in secure relationship to have and raise children. Father, help us to see that as a good thing, to have right attitudes ourselves about children, to make good decisions about the future, and help us as we think about this issue of what's being proposed, of redefining marriage and removing the having and raising children from its definition. Help us to be wise about that, we pray. Amen. The second Bible reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. It's page 1272 of the Church Bibles. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. (coughs) Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Uh, Redefining marriage, we've talked about what's at stake for men and women. Uh, We've talked about what's at stake for children. Uh, Finally... What's at stake for freedom? Well, exactly, you might say. That's the whole point. Uh, It's marriage equality giving people the freedom uh, to be who they are, to be who they want to be, and to do what they want to do. Why shouldn't a same-sex couple have the freedom to marry? Well, over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to answer that question by talking about what is marriage. Uh, Tonight, 
Finally, I want to talk about the freedom to think and to speak. You see, if same-sex marriage comes in, we're assured by the Yes campaign not to worry about freedom, about religious freedom or their freedom to think and speak differently. Not to worry. Don't worry, they say. There'll be an exemption for ministers of religion. Every minister of religion who's asked to take a wedding for a same-sex couple uh, is entitled, has the right, to say no. And they won't get into trouble with the anti-discrimination board. And that's good, isn't it? It should be that way, that someone's not forced uh, to take part in a wedding that they don't agree with. And I wouldn't think that the couple would want you to do that on their wedding day either. That's a good thing. I'd want to ask, will it stay that way? Is that guaranteed or is there likely to be a campaign to change that too in time? But more immediately, what about everyone else involved in weddings? If you've ever been involved in a wedding or at least gone to one, you'll know that there's more involved than just the guy out the front conducting the service. There are other sorts of wedding celebrants, aren't there, who are not ministers of religion. They're civil celebrants, but not all of them would be in favour of same-sex marriage. Would they have the right to say no to a same-sex couple? No. No one is suggesting that they put into the legislation that they have the right to do that. What about a wedding photographer? Can they say no? No. A florist? No. A baker who's asked to put on the wedding cake two men and congratulations Bill and Ben. No, he's not allowed to say no or she to that. What about someone who runs the wedding function centre? No. All of them have to say yes, they are not allowed to discriminate against certain weddings on the basis that they are against same-sex Marriage, for whatever reason, whether it's religious or not, they are not given that freedom. So it's not the case that just by letting ministers off the hook, everything will be okay. Now, it's far bigger than just weddings, isn't it? We're talking about the freedom to think and to speak what you believe. Now, I think you'd probably agree that it's already feels like it's not okay to say no to same-sex marriage. I don't know what it's like with your friends or in the classroom or at the workplace. Every time I post something on Facebook, as I have in the last couple of weeks, about this issue, and I don't normally, but the last couple of weeks, I've hesitated. I'm just posting to the church page, but I'm still wondering what sort of response I'm going to get. The ad we saw at the beginning with the three women, do you remember? The middle lady, she's a doctor. And almost immediately after that ad went to air, there was a petition online for her to be deregistered because she'd expressed her view in a television advertisement. She had abusive phone calls coming to her surgery. 
and the two other women have received similar treatment. Already it feels like it's not okay to say no. What do you think it will be like if same-sex marriage is passed, if it becomes law? Well, it's always hard to know what might happen in the future, isn't it? You have to go by the experience elsewhere where this has happened. So in in places overseas where this has happened, leaders, politicians, employees have been attacked if they've spoken against this. Not just individuals, not just people, but organisations. Schools have been told to teach homosexuality to be in favour of same-sex marriage or face deregistration. Schools and charities must endorse same-sex marriage or lose their funding and probably stop serving. And it won't just be leaders and organisations, it'll be every one of us. We'll lose our freedom to speak because we'll be out of step with the new orthodoxy. What's at stake? Freedom. I've got to confess that like most of us tonight, I reckon, I'm, I'm tired of this issue and we just wish it was over. Have you ever thought that? I'm just tired of this. Whichever way it's going to go, I just want to be over it. It's a bit like the footy season for those of us who are really not interested. The finals come along, it's on the radio again and again and again and you just wish it was over. I don't care who wins. But the truth is this is not like the footy season. It won't be over. You don't fight this hard to get to the top of the hill to sit there and have a picnic. You follow up all the other things as well. And how do we know that will happen? Because that's what's happened elsewhere. Well, what should Christians do when we lose our freedom to think and to speak? When we're threatened by ostracism or abuse or even violence for thinking and speaking things? We saw last week that even if same-sex marriage is passed, we should remember that the sky is not falling. That Jesus said to Christians who had far worse rulers than our country has ever had, I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth. So how should we live if our freedom to speak and think is taken away? Well, this passage in 1 Peter tells us, doesn't it? It's good to suffer for doing what is right. If that's what you're faced with, verse 15, in your hearts set apart Christ, the King, as Lord. Serve him and keep on speaking, it says. Make sure you do it, verse 15, with gentleness and respect, even if the other side isn't gentle and respectful. And never lose sight of the fact that Christ is Lord. And no matter what happens in this world, we have a better hope. Do you see that in verse 15? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's a good reminder too, isn't it? 
that the thing we should talk about most of all is not marriage or same-sex marriage, but our hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think and talk about these things over these couple of weeks. We thank you that we can do that here on our Sunday nights. We thank you that we can do it too in our growth groups and just chatting with one another. Father, help us to think clearly about these issues, about what is marriage and the consequences of redefining it. Help us to think about what's at stake for men and women What's at stake for children? And what's at stake for freedom? Father, we thank you that no matter what happens, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And help us to set apart Christ as Lord of our own hearts so that we would keep on speaking and keep on having our eyes on this hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.